this morning we have the privilege of hearing from another guest. You know, when CCF was still uh, growing, uh, they established CCF Sukat, which eventually became CCF Alabang. And on the north side, you had CCF. Uh, it was then in Valle Verde, and then it became St. Francis. And then you had church plants over there at the north. And it was CCF Alabang. But then God moved. And then our brethren there in Alabang began to plant several churches in the south. And our guest preacher this morning, he is the pastor of CCF Santa Rosa. You know Brother Oli Garcia, right? Our Brother Oli Garcia goes to CCF Santa Rosa. Without further ado, a brother in the Lord, a faithful servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, will you please welcome Pastor Albert Pelea. Thank you, Pastor Insong. Thank you very much. You know, I've heard so many good things about CCFLA. We somewhat have a connection between some of your members and our members. So I'm blessed to be here this morning and to share with you what is close to my heart. I send you warm greetings from CCF Santa Rosa. We started in one of the hotels in CCF Santa Rosa. It was called uh, Laguna Techno Park Hotel. My message this morning is something that is very close to my heart. And I pray that it will minister to you as well. I only have two simple points this morning. And let me warn you, when a preacher says that he has two simple points, beware. That means it's going to be two hours. But don't worry, it's not going to be two hours. The title of my message this morning, The Making of a Disciple. Two points. I'd like you to see the face of a disciple, how a disciple should look like. And then second point, I'd like to talk about the calling of a disciple, the work that we should be doing as disciples of Christ. But before we begin, can I invite you to please join me in prayer? Can I ask you to stand please before the King of Kings? Our Father in heaven, we are joining our hearts this morning to praise you, to worship you, and at the same time to be ministered by your word. We constantly ask for fertile hearts so that we will be receptive to your word so that our lives will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We commit every part of this message now and every part of this worship service that you alone get the glory and the honor in Christ's name. You know, the cross of Jesus Christ strikes at the heart of human pride. For many, it is hard to accept the gospel because it announces that you and I cannot save ourselves. It's only Christ who can save us. And among the apostles, it was John who witnessed every part of Jesus' suffering from the time he was called all the way to the cross in Calvary. And it was also John who heard the last few words of Jesus Christ, the words that he uttered on the cross. In fact, he wrote it in John chapter 19, verses 30. Verse 30, rather. If you have your Bibles, please turn to your Bibles, e-Bibles. And he tells us, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What did Jesus cry out in verse 30? He said, It is finished. Tetelestai. Tetelestai comes from the verb teleo, meaning to bring to an end, to complete or to accomplish. It's a crucial word because it signifies the successful end to a particular course of action. But there is something more unique in this verb. It's the way it was used, the Greek tense. Tetelestai is in the Greek perfect tense. That's significant because you know why? It speaks of an action that has been completed in the past with results even up to the present and the future. So when Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. He meant it was finished in the past, it is finished in the present, and it will remain finished until the future. Tetelestai, the word, during the first century, was used like an accounting term. If a person has paid his debt already, the receipt will be marked paid in full. Paid in full means once that thing is paid, you never have to pay it again. Otherwise, it will be foolish. It's like what happens when we pay off our mortgage. Paid in full means it's paid completely once. So it would be foolish to pay a debt twice. So, when, so what was paid in full by Jesus Christ according to this passage? I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And he said, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. And then in 1 Peter 3.18, he tells us, For Christ died for sins what? once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What was paid in full, according to this verse? The penalty of sin. That was what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty of sin. And the Bible teaches us that our sins, present, past, past, present, future, have been paid in full by that one death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that means we don't have to pay or work for it anymore, our salvation. Otherwise, it's foolish. This truth was very clear in the mind of Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that one may not boast. It teaches us that salvation is not by work, something that we cannot earn, something that we don't have to pay for anymore. Otherwise, it will be foolish. The gospel tells us that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and on the third day, He rose again. And the Bible also teaches that if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe in the finished work of the cross, then you will be saved and have eternal life. This has been taught many times in CCF and we continue to teach this to the people of CCF. That is a fundamental truth that the Bible teaches. 
The question that needs to be asked is this. Is the gospel truth of Jesus Christ settled in our hearts already? Jesus is no liar. When he cried out, Tetelestai, he meant every word of it. It is finished. Look at what Apostle Paul or Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. To those who receive him, who him, Jesus Christ, they have become what? Children of God. Now, as children of God, we also become disciples or followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have learned that a disciple is a follower, a pupil. In the Greek culture, he was described as an apprentice, someone who is on the job training, someone who is supposed to practice what he is learning. Therefore, every believer, every Christian is a disciple of Christ. And that means if we call ourselves disciple of Christ, then we should be practicing what we are learning. Knowing what a disciple is, I'd like to move on to my first point. How then does a disciple look like? How then should you and I look like? In the letter of Paul to his disciple Timothy, Paul gives Timothy three picture images of a disciple. I want you to look at the first image. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. He tells us, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. You know, a resident from LA visited the Philippines recently. He was amazed at how people were driving around Manila. He asked his friend who was driving him around, why are the cars not following the lanes on the road? And then he noticed that there were a lot of signal lights and people were just ignoring them. Most especially those signal lights that blink red and green. He noticed that they were just going through all those red lights. Did you know what the driver friend replied to his friend? Oh, you know those signal lights, those lanes, those stop signs are mere suggestions. <laughs> For believers like us, the commands of God are not suggestions. They were given to us for us to obey them. God gave them for a purpose. And according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, a disciple is compared to what? A good soldier. What is one distinct characteristic of a good soldier? Obedience. Good soldiers obey their superiors unconditionally. Many of you heard about the Mama Sapano incident. 44 men from the Special Action Forces of the PNP were given a mission to enter very hostile territory in Mindanao. The area was surrounded with fully armed rebels and the SAF forces knew that that mission could cost them their lives. It was unfamiliar territory for them. Intelligence report even indicated that were, there were more than a thousand rebels in the area. 
they surrounded the soldiers. And yet, the soldiers obeyed their commander unconditionally, without questions, without objections. Eventually, we know that the 44 men lost their lives. And these soldiers were obedient and loyal to their commander at all costs. Let's bring this closer to home. How would we rate our obedience to the Lord in a scale of 1 to 10? Let's talk about one simple command in the Bible. Do not lie. I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing it. That's what he said. Earlier we said, I have decided to follow you. Have we decided to follow Jesus Christ unconditionally? Do we, truly, do we truly mean what we sing every morning, the lyrics of the song that are being posted in the PowerPoint slides? You know, research indicated that men would speak anywhere from eight to 10,000 words a day. And look at this, women speak somewhere between 13,000 to 15,000 a day. Think about this. How many of those words are true and how many are false? Very often we say, oh, I'll pray for you. But do we really pray for that person? Do we really mean what we say? Think about those many broken promises. Those promises that we constantly break to our spouse, to our children, friends, and office mates. If it is something that we are constantly doing, is it possible that we are already lying? Look at what the parting words of Jesus Christ was to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Obey me. This is Christ himself speaking to his disciples. If you love him, obey him. That's what he's saying. Think about this. The command of the Lord is very simple. It is people like us that complicate, that water down the commands of God. Like a good soldier, we must obey his commands. Even if it hurts, even if it sounds unreasonable at times, and even if it goes against our personal agenda and even our preferences. To a disciple, obedience is the evidence of our love for the Lord. That tells us our loyalty to the Lord. Another image of a disciple can be found in 2 Timothy verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The second picture image of a disciple. He gives us an image of an athlete. You know, during the time of Paul, athletes would train and play according to the rules without having to cheat. Do you still remember the fight between Holyfield and Tyson? Biting is not part of the boxing rules. 
doping today is not according to the rules of the games. For Christians like us, God gave us the Bible as our guidelines, as our manual to live life. Athletes are very disciplined people. They are committed to train themselves for the sport in order to compete without having to cheat. And during training, this is one thing good about an athlete. He will determine what his weaknesses are. Do you know why? So that he can work daily to strengthen those weaknesses. And he has to do it according to the rules. Question, are we aware of our weakness or weaknesses? As believers, are you aware of your weaknesses? You know, every believer has at least one. Even old Christians and pastors like us, we have weaknesses, except maybe for Pastor Desmond. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, we all have weaknesses. It may be the manner of how we speak, how we relate to one another, how we treat our spouse, our children. It may also be how we manage our time, how we sort out our priorities. The truth is, there will always be something to work on and improve on in the life of a disciple. And do you know what I'm learning from the Bible? There is no such a thing as a status quo in the life of a believer. There's no neutral. There are only two directions in the Christian's life. Either we are moving upward or we are moving downward. Forward or either backward. Look at what the Bible says about this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the price of what? The upward call. Proverbs 15, 24 tells us, the path of life leads upward for the wise to keep him from going down the grave. Look at what King Solomon had to say about the Christian life. Moving forward is what's going to keep us from moving backward. And then Paul says, it's an upward call. Regardless of where we are in our Christian journey, one year, or 25 years in the faith. As a pastor or as a D group member, we must be disciplined to keep improving our thought life, our character, every aspect of our Christian life. Not according to the standards of men nor the world, but always according to the ways of the Bible. You know, like an athlete, a disciple must be committed to grow and mature in the faith. Each moment, each day, the moment we wake up. That must be a commitment. Then I'll move on to the last picture image in verse 6. He tells us, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crop. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, the skies, the water, and the animals in five days, what did the Lord say? It was good. 
Then on the sixth day, He created man and woman. And what did God say on the sixth day after creating man and woman? It was very good. It was very good. So if it was very good, why is it that couples today are not experiencing the very good in their marriages? May I suggest why? They are no longer enduring. They are no longer persevering in fulfilling their roles as husband and wife. Some may have given up on their marriages. Others may just be coasting along. And as a result, many couples have missed out on the very good just as God has designed it. Friends, marriage is not the problem. It's people like us that destroy the design of marriage. God invented marriage, and anything from God is good. It's perfect. But it's the husband, the wife that gets into the marriage that causes the problem. We all know, and it has been taught several times, that the husband has been designed by God to be the head. He should lead in all areas of his life, in all areas of the family, the marriage economically, physically, emotionally, spiritually. If he becomes complacent and no longer perseveres in taking that leadership role, then the wife will have the tendency to take charge. When this happens, the design of God is no longer in place. The result? Chaos in the home. Chaos in different areas of the life. Verse 6, Paul gives us the picture image of how you and I should look like as a disciple of Christ. Hard working. Rain or storm, tired and drained, farmers are always in the fields. Early in the morning, working until evening, making sure that their harvest, their field is in proper place. They work hard because they look forward until that day where they will make that harvest. And they face a lot of natural calamities, natural difficulties, storms, excessive rains, drought, insects, pesticides, and even robbers. But in spite of what they face, notice that farmers will not give up easily on their responsibilities to care for their fields. They don't. You should see them in Manila. They work day and night to look after their fields. They watch over them making sure no insects, no pesticides, no robbers would destroy their fields. They will persevere because they look ahead to that harvest. You and I, we will face all forms of temptations and difficulties. For some sooner, for some later. But it's a given. We face difficulties and trials every day. But look at what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He tells us to be firm as disciples, not to be moved easily, and what? To persevere in the work that they are doing. 
Why? Paul tells us that the work that we do is not useless. There will be something good that will come out of it. Question. What has God called you to do at this point in your life? It may be related to our role as a spouse, maybe as a parent. It may be a task in our workplaces, place of business. And it may even be a ministry work here in church. But like a farmer, disciples should not give up easily on doing what is right and pleasing to God. Instead, we persevere on what God has called us to do today. You know why? Because there is something good that will come out of it, according to the Lord. Let me summarize what we've learned about the face of a disciple. He's obedient to the Word. He is personally committed to grow and mature in order to be Christ-like. And then he perseveres. He does not give up easily in the faith. He endures. These are some qualities of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 7, he tells us how we should respond to these qualities that Paul talks about. He tells us, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You know, the word consider means to think over, to ponder, to reflect on. Consider what? If these godly qualities are being reflected in our lives today. Do you see the three R's on the PowerPoint slide? It means revelation requires response. God's revelation will always, will always require a response from His disciples. If God is revealing something to us this morning, at this very moment, He is asking us to respond to it. I want to move on to the second point of our message, the calling of a disciple. John 6, 60 tells us, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Many disciples found the teaching of Jesus very difficult to understand. So what happened in John 6, 66? As a result of this, many, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew, no longer walked with the Lord, no longer followed the Lord. You know what John is telling us this morning? There may be the fake disciples and there may be the true disciples. You know, today many Christians accept Jesus Christ as Savior but not as Lord. Some will come to worship every Sunday and maybe attend D groups every week. But throughout the week, the hearts 
are withdrawn from the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. You cannot separate one from the other. To a true disciple, he must be Savior and Lord at the same time. Then in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, exactly what is here, he tells us, he gives a command to his disciples. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded to you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What was the command to his disciples? Make disciples. The command was given to his true disciples. Remember when the Lord gave this command, Judas was no longer with them. Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20 were the parting words of Jesus Christ before he went to be with the Father. It's the Great Commission, which I personally believe very close to the heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He started this with the 12, 2,000 years ago. And look, it still continues today in CCF Santa Rosa and even here in CCF Los Angeles. Look at verses 18 to 20 closely. The command, make disciples. This command is not a suggestion. It's not an option. This is a command given to his true disciples like you and me. The question we are faced with this morning as we look at this passage is this. Which group do we want to belong to? The John 6.60 disciples or the John 6.66 disciples? I meant John 6.66 disciples or the Matthew 28.18 disciples? 18 to 20 disciples. I was checking if you were listening to me. Nobody <laughs> objected, huh? So two types of disciples. John 6.60, the fake, or Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the true disciples. Here is a truth encounter. Every believer, every Christian is a disciple. And every disciple, like you and me, is commanded to what? Make disciples. That's not from me. That's from the Lord. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Apostle Paul gives us a simple picture of what it means to make disciples. He says, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul referred to the believers in Galatia as his what? Children. Paul wants us to understand that discipleship is like parenting. The things we model and teach our children to obey in the home is the same thing that we should do to our disciples or children in the faith. Just like parenting, we need to be intentional and purposeful in making disciples. We cannot leave that to chance. Did you know that Paul had his own disciples? One was Timothy, and then another was Titus. You can see that in 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul referred to him, to them, as his son or child in the faith. So what was Paul doing in verse 19 of Galatians? He was working hard. 
laboring until what? Christ is formed in the disciples. Paul's goal is for Christ to be formed in our lives, to be Christ-like, to be transformed in the way God th- in the way the Lord thinks, in the way He speaks, in the way He behaves. We have heard from Pastor Danny and Pastor In Song that Philippians two is a beautiful, beautiful description of Christ's likeness, selflessness, humility. If we were to connect this to making disciples, that means that making disciples is a process of moving people to think like Jesus, having an attitude of humility, to live like Jesus by serving others, and to do the things that Jesus did during his three-year ministry, which is what? To make disciples. Howard Hendricks gave us an effective pattern to follow when making disciples. He said, and I quote, every believer must have a Paul, someone who has walked longer than you in the faith, who can mentor and guide you and teach you the word of God. And then he also says that every believer must have a Barnabas, someone who is not impressed by you, someone who will rebuke you if needed. And then he tells us that every believer must have a Timothy, someone whom you should care for and nourish to grow in the faith. Having a mentor like Paul, a Barnabas who is your accountability partner, and a Timothy your disciple is all part of discipleship. You know, my prayer is that each one of us will find this kind of people in our lives if we want to follow Christ and to be transformed into His image. Now, we all know that discipleship must begin in the home. That's a given. Husbands, your number one disciple, the spouse. Parents, Number one disciple, children. It's a given. We need to start in our homes. But eventually, it has to go beyond our homes. And even beyond the four walls of this church. Let me illustrate that. You know, my wife and I used to attend CCF Alabang. Pastor Vic Kisumbing was my D12 leader. And Mavi and I, my wife, we had our own discipleship group growing in Alabama. Now, like many of you, seven years ago, my family and I migrated further south, not to Southern California, only to Santa Rosa, Laguna, okay? My wife and I decided to start a new D group there with two couples. So we began discipling them. I discipled the men, my wife discipled the two ladies. We would meet weekly for our official D group meetings, but we would often go out for coffee, for some snacks and meals throughout the week and as often as we can, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes as couples. The purpose was to make clear to them. The purpose was very made the purpose was made clear to them. It is to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So we shared our strengths. We shared our weaknesses. We talked about our victories. 
We talked about our defeats in the Christian faith. It was a time when we made ourselves accountable to one another and a time to encourage and even cry together. Months later, as we reached out to the community, the Lord began adding more people to our group. When our D group in the home grew to about 25 to 30 people, members, we challenged those two couples to start their own small group. So we decided to divide the group into three. And we also made an, a commitment, an agreement, to begin inviting our non-believer friends, office mates, neighbors around our places, to invite them in our respective D groups. What the two couples learned in our discipleship meetings on how Jesus Christ spent time modeling and teaching his disciples to obey him was the same thing they were challenged to do in their own small groups. By God's grace, the small groups grew to about 10 and the members grew to about 60. It was also during this time that we started a midweek Bible study in a fast food chain in Santa Rosa. I don't know if you still remember Tropical Hot Hamburger. So we started our weekly Bible study there. You know, uh, we there was no place to rent, so everything was consumable. So we had to order the burgers and everything for all the, for all the participants. But we started the Bible study there. And you know, we challenged every member to invite a non-believer friend to that Bible study. The purpose to personally invite those people whom they know, whom they already have a relationship with. And then the plan was to invite them to the different D groups the moment we finish that BF1 and BF2 series. So by God's grace, it happened. We conducted the series for, I think, um, eight, eight or 12 weeks, something like that. And those invited were eventually invited to the different small groups that were in place. And for those who heard about the place, the Bible study in that place, we also made sure that there were D groups on standby to invite them to join those small groups. So four years ago, when we were challenged to start a worship service in Santa Rosa, we gathered all our D group members and started our first worship service. And that was the hotel in CCF, uh, in the Laguna Techno Park, the picture I showed you earlier. You know, last December, the Lord blessed us with a new venue. The worship hall has a seating capacity of almost 500 people. <laughs> Only by God's grace, Pastor Desmond and I were working hard also for the discipleship program to be in place here. In fact, just yesterday, Sunday in Manila, we celebrated our fourth year anniversary by God's grace. And I'm speaking here in CCFLA. <laughs> But you know, by God's grace, there's a team there that's serving there, faithfully committed to the work of the Lord. And yesterday I found out we had more than 400 people who visited the place. You know, today, the last time I was there, we have about 350 people 
regularly attending our two services. And there were times that it would go more than 400. But this is it. 300 or 80% of those who are regularly attending are regular members of our small groups. They belong to the small groups. In different life stages, couples, singles, and youth. They are meeting regularly in the different homes in the Santa Rosa area, Silang, Cabuyao, Calamba area, if you're familiar with that. And we also have a D group in San Pablo who comes regularly every Sunday to worship with us. My wife and I, we continue to meet up with our D12 leaders for discipleship. And last November, we started a new group with non-believers again. Today, we began the process of making disciples, of discipling these new believers and new Christians in the faith. We firmly believe that meeting in a small group setting is an effective venue to pursue Christ's likeness and make disciples, to reach out to the community. And because of this, we never get tired of reminding the church the importance of being Christ-like, to be part of a small group in order to be Christ-like. You know, whether it's 12 or just two people, we encourage them to go and make disciples. If you think about it, we are not inventing anything new, nor are we doing something unique in CCF Santa Rosa, nor at CCF. We are just challenging every member to make a commitment to follow what Jesus started and what Apostle Paul modeled, to make committed Christ followers who will make committed Christ followers. That's the mission of CCF. The mission that has been taken from the Great Commission, which I personally believe is very dear to the heart of the Lord. Remember our first point, the face of a disciple? God is not looking for perfect disciples. He is looking for faithful disciples those who will be obedient, those who will be committed, and those who will be persevering in the call. Here is a quotation for us to think about. Our work is not to save souls, but to disciple them. Salvation and sanctification are the work of God's sovereign grace. And our work as His disciples is to disciple other lives until they are totally yielded to God. One life totally devoted to God is more value to Him than 100 lives that have been simply awakened by His Spirit. Oswald Chambers. You know, for some, they can disciple 12 members. Others, even six. Maybe six. But for most of us this morning, one life, is all that God is asking you to disciple starting today. Just be faithful. Make a difference in the life of that one person by drawing that person closer to the Lord. As we close, let the story of the feeding of the 5,000 serve as an encouragement to all of us. Are you familiar with that story? 
our role is to bring our two fish and five loaves to God. Whatever we have. And then we leave the results to Him. Like a missionary friend said, we are ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God. My challenge for us this morning, my challenge for CCFLA, be a faithful disciple and find someone to disciple. Then you leave the results to God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives. Thank you for calling us to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Today, Lord, the task has been before us. I pray that each one of us will be committed to be faithful followers of your Son, Jesus Christ, and even be faithful in making disciples. Lord, this is not about us. This is all about your work and about reaching the world, all for your glory and honor. We praise you and thank you for this time. May you be blessed and honored as we close this service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.